Hey everybody and welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be reading from my semi-autobiographical novel, I'm Just Making It Up As I Go Along and Things Have Not Been Working Out As Well As I Intended, Chapter 4160. Structure, System, Implementation express yourself use your imagination to express yourself don't be a boring pedantic fuddy-duddy the best advice i ever received was unsolicited and it was a double negative i was frustrated at being rejected from lgbt orgs i wanted to volunteer with them in the early 90s and everyone was either overeducated and elitist with a snobby dismissive disposition or they were highly suspicious of the motives of anyone who wanted to help i expressed my frustration to a slightly older gay man i worked with who was somewhat more adroit in dealing with everything from ngos long before they were referred to as ngos to government agencies and bureaus and he came from a rural background, so his journey was bleaker, shall we say, than mine. He just turned to me and said, Tim, don't believe in anyone who doesn't believe in you. It turned a light on in my mind, and I have kept that in my mind every day since then, and that was a little over 30 years ago. So... The thing about PTSD is that an awful lot of us do not realize that we have been subjected to and are still in the throes of PTSD. We have been told all our lives to tough it out, man up, grow a pair, or something, and we do. We actually do take it harder than any of the people who insist that we do. They don't have to do it. We do, and we carry on. They cry like babies over the slightest perceived indignancies. Catholics are horribly cruel to victims of abuse and torment. They just are. Organized religions sanction inner turmoil. It's truly sick. When you realize you have been a victim, in my case anyway, my mind suddenly gains a bit of clarity and some of the underlying angst is dissipated, at least for the time being. It explains the basis for motivation and apprehension at the same time. I know so many people who have endured what I would think is PTSD. And I remember a woman I work for who described her ongoing inner turmoil that she had to face every day due to the anxiety that stemmed from an abusive alcoholic parent, among other things, and I got so used to hearing about what other people had to endure, it became a bit tiresome to me, or it just inured me to the point where I just assumed everyone I met would have a tale to tell, and that was part of growing up. And more, but it doesn't just stop when you are an adult or a kid 
I hate to use that cliche, but if you, particularly like me, were in Manhattan on 9-11, it was one hell of a traumatic experience. I saw both towers come down from the 20th floor of 505th Avenue, and I hooked up the fiber feed to London from the uh, fiber optic television network I was working for at the time. And it wasn't just that day. We were all shell-shocked. It just kept getting worse. And people are still dealing with it every second of their lives. It happens every day to adults as well. And quite a few of them and the effects of PTSD lead them to traumatize other people. The abused becomes the abuser and all that. Substance abuse based on trauma leads to abuse, then substance abuse based trauma, and it is a vicious circle. And there is so much more. Mentally ill people with no control over violent temperaments. Crass, cold-hearted, cruel people who live to exploit others. Just being out, especially decades ago, was a blistering walk through a blast furnace each and every second of each and every day. One of the reasons gay bars were so vitally important and the tragedy as to why so many are being lost now. We needed them. They were oases. I have finally come to the realization that other people's ideas about life and how to proceed with anything and the incessant need for conformity and approval fuck us up so badly that we don't trust our own inner lights or instincts, if that is what you want to call them. You could oftentimes wind up taking self-destructive risks because part of you is numb and you don't realize what you are leading yourself into. According to the definition, some people do not have PTSD, although they have issues and many of them can be mentally health related. Personally, I have zero expectations. I know that most of what people attribute to professional and financial success is due to relentless self-promotion no matter what the actual success criteria. Ignore the glaring facts and just push yourself over any and everything to make a buck. Exploit any aspect of yourself, offensive, inoffensive, appealing, appalling, whatever, and just be relentless. Sooner or later, you'll get an audience who wants to pay to hear you speak or do whatever it is that sets you apart. After interviewing so many people for my podcast, I know that they represent a larger portion of the population with very many debilitating issues, and it becomes somewhat therapeutic to the interviewees to discuss their personal problems and difficulties, although they might not technically fit within the definition of PTSD. They are lingering problems that they are dealing with as they face their day-to-day struggle and many of them are dealing with PTSD as members of the LGBT community. Some dealing with autoimmune disease and some simultaneously dealing with substance abuse issues and others dealing with physical abuse and some with all three and other issues. Oh boy. So if you exploit your own PTSD, you can become a motivational speaker or a life coach or something along those lines. You're a survivor. I say ahem, because I have been conditioned to dismiss the huge amount of abuse and suffering people endure as part of the cost of doing business, or a rite of passage, or that's just life, to tough noogies, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're a wimp, 
You're a wuss. You're a loser. You're a crybaby. Forget the trespass. Forget the intrusion. Assault. Forget the cruelty. Forget the inhumanity. Forget the physical pain. Forget the fear. Forget the constant insecurity. Forget the nerves. Forget the physical, the emotional, and mental scars that will never heal. Tough shit. This is what people go through every single day. Part of the very evident unconsciousness of the damage lies in social media and selfies in particular and the insecurities we present to the world in the form of what we might refer to as vanity. Selfies. Work out. Show off bodies. Work out. Show yourself dressed up. Work out. Show yourself posing in front of far too much food, which is always weird to me. Work out. Pose in Speedos. Work out. Show off your face at some location, often in an aerial view looking down behind you. It's a full life. This can't be right. Are you no one unless you relentlessly tell everyone where you have been and that you do these things? You lead with your chin? From the National Institute of Mental Health, last updated May 2023. Post-traumatic stress disorder. What is post-traumatic stress disorder? PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is a disorder that develops in some people who have experienced a shocking, scary, or dangerous event. It is natural to feel afraid during and after a traumatic situation. Fear is part of the body's fight-or-flight response, which helps us avoid or respond to potential danger. People may experience a range of reactions after trauma, and most people recover from initial symptoms over time. Those who continue to experience problems may be diagnosed with PTSD. Who gets PTSD? Anyone can develop PTSD at any age. This includes combat veterans and people who have experienced or witnessed a physical or sexual assault, abuse, an accident, a disaster, or other serious events. People who have PTSD may feel stressed or frightened even when they are not in danger. Not everyone with PTSD has been through a dangerous event. Sometimes learning that a friend or family member experienced trauma can cause PTSD. According to the National Center for PTSD, a program of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, about six out of every 100 people will develop PTSD at some point in their lives. Women are more likely to develop PTSD than men. Certain aspects of the traumatic event and some biological factors, such as genes, may make some people more likely to develop PTSD. What are the signs and symptoms of PTSD? Symptoms of PTSD usually begin within three months of the traumatic event, but they sometimes emerge later. To meet the criteria for PTSD, a person must have symptoms for longer than one month, and the symptoms must be severe enough to interfere with aspects of daily life, such as relationships or work. The symptoms also must be unrelated to medication, substance abuse, or other illness. The course of the disorder varies. Some people recover within six months, while others have symptoms that last one year or longer. People with PTSD 
often have co-occurring conditions such as depression, substance abuse, or one or more anxiety disorders. After a dangerous event, it is natural to have some symptoms. For example, some people may feel detached from the experience as though they are observing things rather than experiencing them. A mental health professional who has the experience helping people with PTSD, such as a psychiatrist, psychologist, or clinical social worker, can determine whether symptoms meet the criteria for PTSD. To be diagnosed with PTSD, an adult must have all of the following for at least one month. At least one re-experiencing symptom. At least one avoidance symptom. At least two arousal and reactivity symptoms. At least two cognition and mood symptoms. Re-experiencing symptoms include experiencing flashbacks, reliving the traumatic event, including physical symptoms such as a racing heart or sweating, having recurring memories or dreams related to the event, having distressing thoughts, experiencing physical signs of stress. Thoughts and feelings can trigger these symptoms, as can words, objects, or situations that are reminders of the event. Avoidance symptoms include staying away from places, events, or objects that are reminders of the traumatic experience. Avoiding thoughts or feelings related to the traumatic event. Avoidance symptoms may cause people to change their routines. For example, some people may avoid driving or riding in a car after a serious car accident. Arousal and reactivity symptoms include being easily startled, feeling tense, on guard, or on edge, having difficulty concentrating, having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, feeling irritable and having angry or aggressive outbursts, engaging in risky, reckless, or destructive behavior. Arousal symptoms are often constant. They can lead to feelings of stress and anger and may interfere with parts of daily life such as sleeping, eating, or concentrating. Cognition and mood symptoms include having trouble remembering key features of the traumatic event, having negative thoughts about oneself or the world, having exaggerated feelings of blame directed toward oneself or others, having ongoing negative emotions such as fear, anger, guilt, or shame, losing interest in enjoyable activities, having feelings of social isolation, having difficulty feeling positive emotions such as happiness or satisfaction. Cognition and mood symptoms can begin or worsen after the traumatic event. They can lead to a person to feel detached from friends or family members. The risk factors for PTSD may include being exposed to previous traumatic experiences, particularly during childhood, getting hurt or seeing people hurt or killed, feeling horror, helplessness, or extreme fear, having little or no social support after the event, dealing with extra stress after the event, such as the loss of a loved one, pain and injury, or loss of a job or home, having a personal or family history of mental illness or substance abuse, resilience factors that may reduce the likelihood of developing PTSD include seeking out support from friends, family, or support groups, 
learning to feel okay with one's actions in response to a traumatic event. Having a coping strategy for getting through and learning from the traumatic event. Being prepared and able to respond to upsetting events as they occur despite feeling the fear. Now, the three ways it is most frequently treated are psychotherapy, exposure therapy, and cognitive reconstruction, as well as some medications. Some people with PTSD, such as those in abusive relationships, may be living through ongoing trauma. In these cases, treatment is usually most effective when it addresses both the traumatic situation and the symptoms of PTSD. People who experience traumatic events or who have PTSD may also experience panic disorder, depression, substance abuse, or suicidal thoughts. Treatment for these conditions can help with recovery after trauma. Research shows that support from family and friends can also be an important part of recovery. Now, why would I bring this up? Why on earth would I have something to say about this? Well, I would say that I have a buttload of the symptoms and they go all the way back to pre-adolescence. It is actually quite difficult for me to discuss. It is physically difficult for me to express myself, not just remember, which is a very difficult thing, but I physically seize up and become somewhat paralyzed. And my memory causes nightmarish flashbacks in the most inopportune moments. So that's fun. I don't really think I'm a late bloomer. What you see is what you get. And that's all I have to give. But who knows? Maybe a spark will ignite somewhere before I die and things will get better. I do possess a laundry list of PTSD causes, if you want to be polite about it. It's 52 years later and I stammer and seize up a little talking about it. A two-fold experience, which was a dystopian horror movie-like thing in a hospital. So what happened? Well, when I was a kid, I was subjected to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Doesn't that sound just great? An attention getter for some, anyway. I feel like Uncle Fester in the Adams Family, although I can't illuminate light bulbs by placing them in my mouth or any other orifice. Electro and convulsive, and it is, was, supposed to be beneficial, giving someone an electrically induced convulsion to your brain without any consent. And as I recalled this, which was shocking and terrifying to me, and it was very recent, my doctor told me that he witnessed it firsthand when I finally summed up the courage to bring it up in a checkup discussion. He told me that he witnessed it firsthand at another very well-known hospital and that it's something that has been performed on forsaken adult men and women, but not normally to 11-year-old boys with sepsis of the left foot. At first, I thought it might have been my imagination or a planted memory, perhaps the result of a suggestible period of my life. After all, I did use an awful lot of acid. 
and uh, once came to believe that I had a near-death experience where I went to hell and discovered that my soul was hell-bound and I was beyond redemption until I realized that I never had a near-death experience up until that point anyway. And it was done to an 11-year-old in a hospital. And I had a surgeon who was on the fence about amputating my left foot. <sighs> While I was in the hospital, the nearest large building was Creedmoor Psychiatric Hospital, and it was known as the place for insane people. I was terrified at night when I could see down through the window from my hospital room and look at the windows in Creedmoor and the wire bars in them and see the silhouettes of patients grabbing the bars and rocking back and forth until an attendant or two moved them away. But it was on every floor visible and seeing so many mentally ill people locked up in the same place was deeply disturbing to say the least. But what happened to me was I developed an infection in my left foot, and my left foot had grown to the size of about a watermelon. And it was uh, very disturbing to both of my parents, and I needed to be hospitalized immediately after going to the doctor. So I was checked into a hospital, and I was put on IV, and I had my leg elevated, and I was in a ward for kids. Now, the kids ward, it was like pre-adolescent, adolescent ward, was full of primary colors and block letters and, you know, slogans and mottos saying how well you're going to be. And everything was lighthearted and it was happy talk and it was all supposed to be geared toward making you feel better and distract your mind from the fact that you're in a hospital. And while I was there, I was treated with kid gloves and a very beneficial, soft, gentle tones, and everything was reassuring. And what happened was, last year, while I was working at some place I didn't want to work at, and I needed to do something for my own security, I had gotten hold of a uh, stun gun to defend myself. And I was showing how it worked to people I worked with, and it went off, and it made that crackling sound that you would associate with a stun gun. And I had uh, held it in my hand outside the business I was standing outside of, and the proprietor of the business next door saw it in my hand, and he said, yeah, stick him in the face, get him in the face. And that seemed to have triggered some sort of memory with inside me because as he said that, I had some sort of seizure where I just froze and I just couldn't move. And I pulled myself together after a few minutes and then I went to sleep that night and the next morning I woke up in bed and I seemed to have had some sort of waking nightmare as I woke up and I started recalling this experience and I was laying in bed and I remember looking up to the ceiling and all I could see was a very cinematic experience it was like I was looking at something black in slow motion and it was like a giant mirror that had been smashed was all coming back together again in slow motion in reverse 
and most of the shards came back in place with the pieces, but I'd say between 20 and 30% was still missing at that point. And I told my husband while I was laying in bed what I was recalling. And I was saying it devoid of emotion, and I was looking up almost like I was in a trance. I probably was in a trance. And he looked at me with this look on his face I had never seen before. And he went into our living room, and he sat down at the computer in the living room, and he looked up the hospital that I was in and the time, and it turns out that someone did a FOIA request, and they found out that what I said actually took place. They performed electroconvulsive therapy on people. Now, I wasn't listed in this FOIA request, but it turns out that virtually none of the people requested to be electroshocked. And the memory was staggeringly uh, seizing. I, I couldn't move. I, I, I couldn't do anything. I was paralyzed. And bits and pieces of it come back to me. And it's like these little bits and pieces of a mirror or long shards of a mirror. They all reassemble. And every time I think of it, I'm paralyzed. And it turns out that while I was going to different types of tests and I was being psychologically evaluated by a non-stop series of doctors because they were on the uh, they were on the edge of thinking about whether or not they were going to remove my foot. And what happened was I was being treated with kid gloves by all the staff in the hospital. I got a lot of happy talk. I was uh, being taken on a gurney to radiology and all different types of tests and everybody was giving me happy talk. Everyone was saying we're going to get you well and everyone was kind and everyone was gentle and everyone was nice and wherever I went was uh, a very comfortable, reassuring, calming, serene part of the hospital where all these tests were being performed. And I remember sitting in my bed and doctors showing up, sitting there with clipboards and asking me series of questions after questions after questions. And I didn't realize I was being psychologically evaluated all this time, as well as them trying to deduce what the cause of my, what was eventually a sepsis, they called a cellulitis of the left foot, uh, really was. And uh, while I was in there, somebody had come to the conclusion that they were going to perform electroconvulsive therapy on me. Now, I was 11 years old, as far as I remember, and I was a, you know, I was a grown kid, a big kid. It wasn't a little kid. And every single time I had been taken to any testing, I was on a hospital gurney, which is like a hospital bed, and uh, I wasn't strapped down or anything. They knew I wouldn't, wasn't going to fall off. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, just jump up and leap up. I didn't want to do any of those things anyway. Plus, I, was, I had IV in my arm, and my leg was elevated, and there was uh, no, no chance that I was going to fall or decide to get up or do anything rash. So I had all these experiences, and everybody was very nice to me, and I was returned to, to my hospital room. And uh, one day, out of the uh, 11 or 12 days I spent in the hospital, 
two attendants came to the hospital room and they were very cold and they were unfriendly and they avoided eye contact and they took me off of my bed onto a gurney and they strapped me down and I was surprised at how dehumanized I felt and how little contact they had with me and that they didn't want to engage with me and I kept on telling them you don't have to strap me down I'm a big kid I, I'm not gonna fall and they didn't listen to me they ignored me and they looked straight ahead and they put me in the elevator to go to wherever I was going and I had been to a number of uh, different departments in the hospital in the same elevator but when we got off the elevator this was like Jacob's Ladder this was horrifying I can clearly remember being in a hallway that had the blinking overhead fluorescent lights and it was all dim lighting and everything was very functionary and everything was really really industrial and it didn't look pretty or anything like this and there was a series of stretchers with people on them outside of this area and they put me in this room and there were other people in the room with me and I kept on telling everybody you've got you've made a mistake you've got the wrong guy you, I, I'm not this person and no one would listen to me and no one treated me like a human being and no one would, would acknowledge me or dignify my existence and when they finally put me on this uh, bed or a platform or whatever it was or they moved me into, into place I remember laying there telling them, I, I really, you, you've got the wrong guy. And all I remember was one of them slapping my mouth and shoving this clear rubber mouth guard into my mouth and shutting me up and then putting a wetted, look like a, a earbuds or a, a headphones onto my head and turning up the, the electroshock. And it happened over and over again. And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I, and I was being shocked. I was, I was being shocked. And then our, all I remember was seeing the dead-eyed faces of all these forsaken middle-aged men and women who it had happened to them. And I was the only kid. I was the only kid. And I couldn't believe this was happening to me. And was, I was also stunned that I was... You know, I just received electroshock therapy. I was actually shocked. And uh, I was convinced, I'm convinced now, that it was because of the psychological evaluations decided that I was gay and they were going to do some gay aversion therapy and uh, shock me. Maybe shock the queer out of me. So I was brought back to my ho hospital room. And uh, the thing I also have to remember is um, all that day, during the day, before these guys came to get me, the nurses kept on making sure to tell me to go to the bathroom. And I'm pretty sure that they, they did that because they didn't want me to soil myself while I was being electroshocked. And when I got back, uh, they uh, glossed over my experience and I wasn't treated with the same tender, loving care and affection. I received uh, they were nicer later but at first it was cold and distant and very clinical and then it happened again and it happened again and I had at least three or four occasions where I experienced electroconvulsive therapy and I wasn't even 
an adolescent. I was 11. And the only reason I still have my foot is because my dear sweet mother was in the hospital room with me and my cranky doctor who threatened to operate and I didn't quite understand that he was going to remove my foot. I thought he was going to just cut open my foot and, and take, the, take a slice it open and, and move the pus because I was a little kid. Uh, my mother uh, implored me to try to take a step and if I could walk around the room on my foot they weren't going to operate. And my father was uh, trying to be as uh, solid and uh, supportive as possible, but he wasn't trying to be a, a show, a show emotion. So I couldn't uh, look to him for that knowledge or that internal care that my mom had. When I saw that look on my mother's face and I heard the tone in her voice, I realized how serious it was. So I somehow managed to walk around the room and the doctor decided not to. And uh, soon after that, I, I was released from the hospital several days later. And it turns out that these doctors also had a girl who was my age who had the exact same thing. And uh, they were tracking us against each other. And we both started getting better at the same time after getting it at the same time. And we both managed to eventually lose the crutches and walk on our feet again. And I go back to the doctor and everything eventually was fine. But I received electroshock therapy. Now, uh, the thing about this is when I had this, I didn't realize what was going on. I didn't know that that was electroshock therapy. And um, I suppressed this memory and this knowledge and this experience for over 50 years and when it came back to me because of that prompting because of testing out the stun gun that I was hoping to never use to defend myself I was so shocked and I was so paralyzed and I was so freaked out that when I went to my doctor to talk about this, I was really afraid that he was going to dismiss what I was saying or tell me that I might have been mistaken or that it could have been a suggested memory or a planted memory. But no, he, he did not say that at all. He said, what you're saying is accurate and true. You really did experience this. I know. I experienced it firsthand at Bellevue Hospital. You did go through this. It's a standard procedure. And they do it to people against their will. And I was just so grateful that he told me the truth and he affirmed this. And I don't think my parents knew that this happened to me. Uh, or if they did, uh, I think they went along with what the doctors had suggested because that was a standard procedure or that was the conventional wisdom of the time. So I'm not angry at anybody for doing this. I was just grateful for having the knowledge that this actually did happen and it wasn't my imagination and it relieved a tremendous amount of internal anxiety it comes up but the entire idea of this as something that I had blocked out of my mind and all the other tension and anxiety and angst that resulted from this 
was now attributable to this experience, it makes me feel a whole lot better. It made me feel a whole lot better. And it, it has unfrozen some of me. And uh, I, I want to share this with other people in case anyone has this. But know that PTSD is real. It can happen to you. And the lingering effects can last a very, very, very long time. In my case, over five decades. And that's just part one. I have part two and I have part three, maybe part four. I've been mugged 11 times. We've been robbed twice. I was robbed separately in another place. I've been flooded out. I've had my car stolen. I've been violently gay bashed twice. And I've had a lot of personal damage, physical damage. And it sucks. So there's obviously more to come. And I've got a lot to go through, but I'm going to leave you with this for now. So, that's me. I'm a mess. Enough is enough. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Thank you.